whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you are catching some brainwaves coming to you from the banks of the blooming and resolute St. Brain River, and almost always sunny Longmont, Colorado, I'm Ben Kolb, and spaced at least six and a half feet away from me in the guest host chair is the educator, the myth, the legend behind at Fantastically Fourth on Instagram. She's Shane Saeed. Shane, first off, what's good? And secondly, who are you? Hey, Ben. Excited to be here with you. It's truly a dream to come and be here recording Rainwaves podcast. I've been listening to you for years now. So as Ben said, I'm Shane Saeed. I currently teach fourth grade. And if you're on social media, you may know me from Instagram as Fantastically Fourth, where I share a lot of ideas that I implement in my classroom, classroom organization, and flexible learning spaces. Yes. And that is an understatement because you have like 100,000 followers, right? That's Not incredible. Quite 100. Well, after this, <laughs> after this show, it'll be 100 for sure. So yeah, this show is all about bringing giants in education to the earbuds of our favorite people, busy teachers. And our guest today is definitely a giant, but you are equally gigantic, right? I think every female likes to be told they're equally, they're gigantic, <laughs> but you have incredible advice, Shane. You are an amazing teacher. And so let's give the people what they want. Can you tell us some cool things and, and some maybe some tips and tricks for how you can thrive in a hybrid environment? Yeah, definitely, Ben. Um, it's truly been a whirlwind as an educator in the classroom of trial and error for sure. Um, but I've been trying out teaching in my class different things such as rotations in, during our high flex time. So instead of teaching synchronously in the elementary classroom, I've been actually teaching my virtual kids first and then teaching my in-class kids second. So uh, what we do is we build up to, we're building up essentially to a station rotation model for a uh, blended learning space. I teach my virtual group first while I, um, while my in-class kids engage in a retrieval practice activity based around concepts that we've already learned uh, to commit that information to long-term memory. Retrieval practice is one of my newest favorite uh, professional development pieces. Yeah, tell me like I'm a kindergartner. What is, what's retrieval practice and why is it getting a lot of hype right now? So retrieval practice, well, first I, I need to uh, really put out there that Patrice uh, Bain and Pooja Argwal, who wrote Powerful Teaching, um, it's one of the professional developments that we're actually doing in our district right now have written this amazing book to talk about how retrieval practice, which is the practice of actually pulling information out of our brain, is so important in the education setting because a lot of what we do in education is encoding. So we give students information, but we never really ask them to remember that information until it's a high stakes environment such as an assessment. So the idea around retrieval practice is that we are giving them more opportunities in a low stakes environment in order to allow them to practice their uh, remembering of information and concepts. And the idea is that we can get foundational information down and pat so that we can move on to those higher level, like Bloom's taxonomy of uh, creating and analyzing in order to have a more uh, successful classroom environment and have students understanding concepts at higher levels. That That's fascinating. So basically having kids dig back for information helps them actually learn it is kind of what retrieval does. Shocking, right? Like practice Totes. remembering. You, you drive to one place, you practice driving to that place, you're going to remember that route no matter what. And then it just becomes, you drive there and text at the same time. <laughs> I hope not. Yeah. Or listen to brainwaves at or the same time. Or listen to brainwaves. Uh, so I interrupted you, sorry. So you, what's going on in hybrids with retrieval and all that stuff, sorry. Oh, no problem. That was a great you know, background to what the, my in-class kids are actually doing while I'm teaching my virtual students. So um, students are working on retrieval activities, and while they work independently on those retrieval activities, which, again, are based on previous concepts, so it's independent because they know it and they won't need my support for it, um, I give a mini lesson to my students at home, and we do guided practice, and then I send them on their way to finish the rest of the independent work. And then I teach, again, my sec mini lesson all over again with students in the classroom, and I found that by teaching in rotations like this, I was better able to connect with each group of students, especially in the elementary setting. They know when you're talking to the, what I call the Zoomers, and when you talk to the rumors. Ooh, Zoomers and rumors. <laughs> Get you some of that. That's awesome. So it's been a really great way to um, 
build that capacity with students in the room and then also online. And then I've also found some like two really big tidbits this year is that it's important to go slow to go fast. Um, modeling and practicing how to use these different online platforms and tools to help build their capacity so that they can masterfully use it on their own. Um, and then also making um, the at homework incredibly scaffolded so that they also, again, have that capacity to do it independently and be able to then provide an extension for students who are able to move through the material quickly. And then the scaffolded portion, if they were moving through it at a normal pace, then they could just stop with the independent work essentially. So it's been an adventure. Um, We're finding what works for us and truly getting in a groove at this point. Yeah. Getting in a groove just in time for maybe a change. uh, Yeah. Hopefully not. Fingers (laughs) crossed for sure. Well, already I feel like the money back guarantee is out the window because already there's been so much value just in that. But who do we have on the show today? Oh, man, we have Principal Kefele, who has turned around several schools, authored over 10 top selling books, has keynoted dozens of big educational conferences, created YouTube videos with 100,000 views and so much more and someone every school leader should know. Yes, absolutely. And in this episode, we talk about what are those things that your principal wishes that you knew, how your attitude can shape your reality, and how we can all be more culturally responsive in our work. So without further ado, here he is. There are a lot of people coming to the realization that our history books aren't really stacked with the history of African-American history, such as the Tulsa Massacre or even um, like Black Wall Street. Those are so important. And there are points that are being left out of our children's education that we aren't able to give them that identity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, just going, referring to what you just referenced, Black Wall Street, I'd never heard of that until I began to do that, that that research and that study and, and stumbled on it. 1921, with, with with those race riots and ultimately burning that that portion of Tulsa down to nothing, with the exception of one church, it still stands today. But everything else is gone. Um, we're talking about a history of a community where the dollar never really had reason to ever leave it, because everything that was needed there was there, and that's including a school system. So you know, an economically self sufficient. In, in the context of the 1920s and previous for black people in America in a, in a Southern town, but yet was self-sustaining. So once that happened, the information just was never disseminated. So it never made its way into textbooks. And I had even met people when, when I began to post about it on social media last year, I came across people from Tulsa. They told me they, they're from Tulsa, live in Tulsa, and were not familiar with Black Wall Street. So when we, when we say it was hidden, it was really hidden. It was hidden from people who were right there. I mean, it really, it, it shows, especially with your story, how important it is that these histories are not erased from our history books and that they are continued to be taught in schools because it is so important to the identities of so many children of color in order to make them feel seen, feel heard, and also know that we're, you know, they, there was massive success and It's just crazy that we've, that it's been erased from our history. Yeah, absolutely. How how you've turned around a lot of schools. How did the reintroduction of that history help to turn around some of those schools? In in terms of my work as as both a a principal and a teacher, that was what I brought with me. And as, as I jokingly say to people all the time, the reason that it was brought with me is because it was all I knew. I didn't know I didn't know anything else, so I didn't know better. So here I was bringing this approach of, of cultural relevance to um, black students, and, and there was really no language for that back then, in terms of how it's how how it's being utilized now, um, how we discuss it now. So it was just something that I felt was just the the right thing to do. It was natural, and then um, years later it becomes a quote unquote, it becomes a thing. It becomes something that people are, are um, engaging in professional learning in and in implementing in their schools, this, this entity called 
cultural responsiveness, cultural relevance under the umbrella of equity. And uh, for me, it was like, well, okay, those are, these, are the, these are the issues that, that years ago folks didn't weren't inviting me to come and present on. And now, um, you know, the table's turned, and now here you've got folks that this is all they want. They want to figure, they want to, they want to learn and discover and figure out how we ensure that we're culturally responsive in a diverse student, with, with, with a diverse student body or culturally relevant in pedagogy with a diverse student body or, or even just students that look unlike the teacher. So, you know, being, you know, it's, it's just interesting from my vantage point how the education landscape has evolved over time relative to um, that being something of necessity in a school. So then, I mean, as you said, incredibly important. Can you speak to the further importance of educators building their cultural competency in order to be able to successfully have that culturally responsive teaching within their classrooms? Absolutely. And, and see, there, there's, still, there's still educators in the world who want to cling on to the notion of they don't see race, they don't see ethnicity, they don't see um, the diversity of culture in their classroom. They, they, they just see children. Those, those educators are still there because I, I meet them regularly when I'm doing equity work in the field. Um, they reveal themselves. Uh, they're typically passionate about where they stand that and, and, and will question why we even having this conversation um, about racial diversity, cultural diversity in a classroom. So they're there. So what they don't understand in that moment is that they've been doing harm to young people for depending on how many years they're teaching, years, the, the years that they've been in the classroom or decades because they looked at the children and saw them as all being the same. And in doing so, they, they failed to prepare them for life after the dismissal bell rings in the afternoon. Children didn't, because they were in this, this fantasy classroom that doesn't exist in the real world on the one hand. But on the other hand, those children, they're all, regardless of what their, their ethnic cultural background may be, they're all standing on the shoulders of some great people. And by suppressing or denying their cultural identity, then, then we have minimized, if not completely um, omitted, that aspect of who they are. So, so I always say, you know, it, it, it speak, um, speaking within the, the shoes of the youngster, teacher, if you don't see my racial cultural identity, you don't see me. And if you don't see me, you can't effectively teach me because I'm invisible. Right. So I say for a teacher in, in, in terms of the, equ- the equity conversation, student individuality matters, student cultural identity matters and student voice matters. So I say those, those, those three areas, they, they're just so critical in terms of being a, a true equitable practitioner because, because, because you are going to look at the individuality of the, of the student. You're going to accentuate it, celebrate it, um, illuminate it, so, so, and distinguish it. So I call it student individuality distinctiveness. And then that cultural identity, uh, it, it matters as well because, once again, that it, it comprises in, in large part who that student is, who that person is. When I, when I go places, I'm very clear. When I, when I walk out of the door, I'm very clear that I'm not outside as a generic individual. I'm outside of the black man. That's, I mean, that's just, just very clear. And, and, I, and I see it in various different genres, um, in particularly in the, in the speaker world. It, it's just so evident when you walk into a room, when you walk into a, a, a meeting room, for example, a breakout room, or even on a stage as a keynote speaker, you, you, you feel what you are. And it, and, and it is what you are. It is who you are. And as a youngster growing up, if you haven't been prepared to walk into a world that's going to see you, that's, that's not going to see you as, as someone of a different racial ethnic group, it's not going to see you as being the same as that, that individual, you got to be prepared for that. you got to know how to navigate it. And if you don't know how to navigate it, then it's, um, it, it, it can create some real challenges for you as you, as you try to find your, your place in the world, professionally speaking. If you don't see me for my race, you don't see me. Um, I think that's an incredibly like powerful idea there. Uh, another one. You, no, I, I, I was going to say that there's a there's a real flip side to that. It, it, it's relevant here in this discussion. And, and and the flip side is 
here I just spent five minutes saying it. See my cultural identity. See, see me. See, see me for who I am in totality. See, see my race. See, see, see me culturally, etc. But then, the, when, when, there, there's a, there's an inverse, and and here, what, what I'm saying here is that I, there's a there's an activity that I do when I'm doing equity work where where the audience is predominantly white, and that activity is when I walk into the room, I'll say to the folks, I'll say, well, once I set up and I'm ready to ready to start, I'll say to the folks. For those of you who are not familiar with me at all, like like you've never heard of Principal Kafele, I said I want you I, I, I want you to participate. Those of you that have some level of familiar, familiarity with me, I want you to just watch, and then we go to it. I say to the folks that didn't know me, I said as you when you saw me walk in, when you saw me set up, when you just observed me in the room, tell me what you saw. Did you see the presenter, or did you see an African-American presenter, right? And the room typically will go quiet at that point and nobody wants to jump in and you got to beg. And then once um, somebody decides to jump in, they'll, they'll, I say, well, yeah, let's hear from you. I said, who did you see? Did you see, did you see a presenter or did you see an African-American presenter? Um, and they'll, they'll say, well, I saw an African-American presenter. I say, fine, someone else. Me too. I saw an African-American presenter. Someone else. So did I. I saw an African American presenter. So, so it becomes consensus in the room. They saw an African American presenter. So then I'll say, I say, okay, let's do this again. But this time, I didn't walk into the room and I'll name some presenter that's world renowned, famous that they all would know. And I'll say, if if that person walked into the room, tell me who you see. Do you do you see a presenter or do you see a white presenter? Right. So then they get quiet again, and I go into my my spiel. Like, come on, somebody, jump on in here. And then finally, someone will say, typically the same person that went first before will say, um, I saw a presenter. Okay, very good. Somebody else, presenter. Someone else, presenter. Is that consensus? Pretty much, yeah. So now what's happening here, so with the white presenter, you didn't see ethnicity. You just saw a presenter, so this was natural. This was, this was normal what we saw in terms of a white presenter walking into a school, into a, into a, wherever it was, a school, a convention center, whatever it is. But with me, I became an aberration. I, I was not the norm. I was not normal. It wasn't normal to see, to, to see someone of my, of my ethnicity. And, and we may, and we may even bring into the, the whole court conversation a, a black male, black male or man presenter. So, so, so now as we get deeper into this conversation, and, and really that depends on that audience, because some some audiences are very good with this, and other audiences this is this this is difficult, because what it has done, it has created cognitive dissonance. So now you've got the you've got audience members who, for the first time in person, is seeing a black man who's teaching, not not running running up and down a field with a football. Right or, or or up and down a court with a basketball or 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 singing on a stage or dancing or or on the six p.m. news with handcuffs, um, they're they're seeing this black man who 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 is bringing intelligence, uh, who's bringing a a, a a a lot of experience and preparation, and and you've got an audience who've never seen this in person, so it's like it's it's like a huh moment, right? So um. And, 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 and the interesting for me thing for me is that is this is not a one-time thing. These these are things that I've experienced throughout my my career as a speaker. And on the one hand, this is a part of the presentation because it's an equity presentation. But on the other hand, I have these conversations with teachers at lunchtime when I'm doing a full day presentation where I'm sitting at the table with them and I will engage them in this conversation. So, so it wasn't part of the presentation and it may not even make its way into the presentation. This is just us talking. And, and they'll say to me, because, you know, because I, you know, I put it out there for them to have, have the vehicle to have the conversation with me. But now they're saying, yeah, this is something different. I, I've never experienced this before. And that's not an indictment against, against, white colleagues this this is something that it just emerges with you know with some that i talk to and they say yeah this is this is this is a different experience for me I, i've never experienced this i've seen african-american presenters on video a, a podcast whatever but in terms of sitting in the room it's a different experience but it's but it's a necessary experience you know i'm always glad to have this experience and for folks to 
to be, you know, to, 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 to be in this uncomfortable setting and to share with me what's on their mind, um, what this experience was like, what they felt, you know, and, and, and then we can go deeper. Why is this new? Right. And, 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 and some of the obvious answers are the school, the school district never brought in a black presenter before. It's, it's, it's interesting for me because when I'm, when I'm watching cable news, the times when you'll see a lot of black guests on a panel is when it's a black situation. So, so, so for example, there was a police shooting. So now all the black experts are on the panel talking about what, what you know, whatever their vantage point with this situation. But, but a lot of times with me, not, not a lot of times, a hundred percent of the time I'm saying, where are these same black panelists when the issue is not a black issue? Because the message is sending is that black folks are relevant on, on a panel discussion to talk about a black issue. But but what about what what about climate control? That's off the top of my head. Where 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 the black where the black panelists to talk about climate control? Are we not relevant in those issues? So the reason I just brought that into this discussion is to say that I don't want to just have the, the the race conversation when I'm there to speak about equity. If if I'm there to speak about attitude, if I'm there to speak about school climate and culture. There's there's still relevance in this discussion because I want you I want the audience to see that Principal Kafele or any other black speaker can come and speak on issues that have nothing to do with race, right? So 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 don't just invite me out to have a race conversation. Invite me out to have a, a, a leadership conversation that's generic, or or a climate culture conversation, or a curriculum conversation, or a finance conversation, whatever it is that has nothing to do with ethnicity, race, and culture. That's the point. So so teachers and educators being able to see non-white people beyond just relevant when the issue is race. I guess I took ten minutes to get to that point. <laughs> I mean, amazing though, because not just speaking about equity, that we are bringing in all of those voices during all all conversations, not just during the conversations where they're centered in it. Right, because because you know, because you think about February Black History Month, and then everybody's running out trying to find black presenters during Black History Month to come to schools and talk to kids, etc. I remember because you guys, I guess we first saw each other at, at an ASCD conference, and it's 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 so you know so interesting for me when the first book I wrote for ASCD was a book for for teachers of black boys, motivating black males to achieve in school and in life. But I, I, I saw early on, I said, I'm being pigeonholed into the guy that speaks on black male issues and, and, and thereby folks will not see me as having relevance outside of this. So I, I, I called them, I called ASCD, they, they, they could tell you the story. I called them and said, I have to get out of this pigeonhole I'm in. I need to write a book to show, to show the, the education audience out here. That, that I can do more than just black issues. So I said, I, 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 and I said, so I already know the book I want to write and I, and I already know the title that I needed to have and it would be called Closing the Attitude Gap. That was a book that was for everybody. And then I went on and, and, and wrote, I guess, six, six more books that were for anybody, particularly the leadership books that I wrote. But then when, um, when George Floyd's murder happened, on May 25, I, I reached out to ASCD again recently and said, I need to write a book that speaks to black issues again, because I, I haven't done that since 2008. So I went on and wrote it. I wrote it in, in, uh, in two weeks um, and just finished it last week. Um, and it's called The Equity and Social Justice 50. Many of my books end with the number 50 because they're 50 self-reflective questions. So I said, I got to get back to that writing now because I need, I need to write a book where folks in the world understand social justice education as it relates to black children specifically and, 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 and equity as it relates to black children specifically in the context of where America is right now in the aftermath of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. So it, it, it allowed me to go back to that kind of writing, but, but now, um, folks know, you know, folks that know me in the education world know that I'm not limited to that. You know, so it's always going to be my core, 
but I'm not limited to it. I can I can get in there with 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 the best of non-black speakers and speak on a lot of different uh, areas of education as well. I just happen to be a black man that's doing it. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And it's just interesting that we hope to have this conversation. So we have all the questions from when we were going to talk to you in Chicago and two years ago, and, and none of them really were about equity. They all were about, you know, all of your leadership stuff, which is fantastic. Yeah, and yeah. I, we totally appreciate that you looked at the world and just identified, hey, I can do all these things, but this point of view is so crucial right now. Would you be yeah. able to give us a, a teaser of any of those self-reflective questions from your new book coming out in uh, 2021? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and as a matter of fact, I, I kind of did when um, when I talked about the, the student individuality. But 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 to go up a step further with it, um, with social justice education, for example, I posed the question: What is that? She can see we see we're talking about social justice, racial justice in term as a, as a as a country, um, but it has school implications, and and as 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 we as we as we delve into the school implications, we're looking at well social justice education. So I began to ask the question rhetorically, what does that mean? Because we're 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 we're, we're talking about the fact that it needs to be there, but there's no real common definition. Just like with equity. There's no real common definition. You know, a lot of times, a lot of people, their fallback is, well, it means that the children are different. So we have to meet them where they are. That's, that's, that's typically the fallback definition. But in terms of real definition, it gets a little, it gets, it gets much deeper than that. So with social justice education and, and me calling myself a social justice practitioner from day one of, of going back to 1990, I mean, sorry, 1988, I, I, I said that social justice education, I'm going to read this to you, um, although it's memorized, but I said social justice education is the ongoing student-centered exploration, examination, and assessment of the world upon which your students exist through their own lens, not the lens of the teacher, but through their lens, because we're talking about social justice education, teacher playing the role of facilitator. So I go on and say, it's an interdisciplinary critical analysis of the world around them with respect to their relationship with it and how they fit in it via their own self-expression relative to issues of social justice, social injustice, and overall systemic, institutional, and individual racism. So going back to where I said interdisciplinary, I'm saying to the educator, it's not just a side conversation or an add-on to what you do, but but more importantly, it's it, to do it right, I believe, it, 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 it has to be infused into the math lesson, the science lesson, the social studies lesson, the language arts lesson, the PE and health lesson. Because see, when, when, when we take it and infuse it into math, and, and, and with, with the focus being primarily on black students right now in terms of where we are as a country, but, but, a, but a black student in a diverse classroom. So when you juxtapose that with the achievement gap and you look at black children being on, on the wrong end, at, at, at the extreme wrong end of the achievement gap in mathematics, well, here I'm saying that in a math lesson, and we're talking about numbers, we're talking about fractions, we're talking about percentages, we're talking about whatever it is we're talking about in math, and then we, we weave the social justice into the math. So, so for example, off the top of my head, um, matter of fact, what I wrote about in the book, I went, I, I did this historically. I said we're in the hundredth, the one hundredth anniversary of the Negro Leagues. So, uh, uh, so baseball leagues created for the sole purpose in 1920 that if you were black, you couldn't play in the majors because you were black, despite the fact that you were super talented. Um, a Josh Gibson hitting 800 home runs, which is unheard of in the major leagues, but because he was black. He couldn't play in the majors or, or Satchel Paige, who was doing incredible things from the pitcher's, uh, pitcher's mound, but couldn't play in the major leagues because he was black. A Jackie Robinson, who comes in 1947 from the Kansas City Monarchs, but wasn't even considered, not only was he not considered the best player in the Negro Leagues, but he wasn't even considered the best player on his team. But because of, because of his temperament, they felt he would be the best choice. To come into the majors. So here I'm saying, so, so what if we took math and we looked at how to compute batting averages, right? How, how, 
how to how to compute um, uh, various different percentages as it related to pitching, or or just all the the various different analytics of baseball, but infused a study of the Negro Leagues, which which is a relevant conversation hundred years ago to two thousand twenty in terms of the racism, and and thereby bringing the mathematics to life through the lens of an African American. But then you're looking at your white students in the classroom, for example, who probably would know little, just as little about the Negro Leagues as the black student that's sitting there. So now we talk about, in, in particular, if you got kids in the classroom who are baseball fans, who are sports fans, and you look at the exploits of so many different Negro League players, right, beyond the two that I named, who I, I think it's something like it's 40-something of them who made the, the, the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, right? Who, who, who started off in the Negro Leagues and wound up in the, in the Major Leagues after Jackie Robinson moved to color barrier. So, but, but there's so much math in there, right? So much science in there. So obviously so much social studies and language arts because there's so much that can be written about, so much can be read, so much can be spoken on, so much can be, can be viewed. Um, and, and, and I think I hit on it. reading, writing, listening, and so much can be listened to and then and, and speaking. So, and so there's just so much there um, in terms of taking it from the abstract and making it concrete in terms of just being uh, a student being able, to comp- being able to comprehend. But but again, you take that non-black student, whether the student be white, Latino, Asian, whatever it is, you're informing them as well. So now it enables, because a lot of times you find so many young people who identify with black people through sports and entertainment, and particularly hip hop music. So now you, you, you take something like social justice, the various genres of social justice, and apply it to the content area that the youngster is being exposed to, and, 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 or the youngster is being exposed to, and they can see the world through just a multiplicity of lenses, which included what I said about sports with the Negro Leagues, but I'm not looking at Negro Leagues solely from a sports vantage point. I'm looking at it through a, through a social justice vantage point or a racial justice vantage point that you had young, you, you had athletes who were world class, but were denied. So, so it's not just the baseball component; it's the it's the travel component, having to sleep on 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 these old rickety buses in upright seats. It's the it's the health component. We're not exposed; could could not gain access to a decent meal because they couldn't go into those restaurants, right? Couldn't couldn't could you know couldn't go into a, a decent hotel, you know, all that all all that segregation. So there's so much to learn. But you can do it through mathematics. You can do it through science. You can do it through social studies. You can do it through language arts. Well, and so much of what you just said is encompassing just what great teaching is cross-curricularly. And making sure that we are infusing social justice across all of our content areas. And I know that like uh, culturally responsive researchers such as Geneva Gay have talked about how teaching content in the areas of math and science and exploring and discussing people of color who actually contributed to that content and then also digging into their histories as well. I mean, that can be so powerful to have students in the classroom see themselves not only as historical figures, but also as people who have been able to actually add to their content areas. And that's different than just, you know, well, we read about this person or we write about this person. And as you said, there's just so much to dig into well, segue in a little bit here. You are definitely one of the most sought after educational speakers. Like we'd mentioned uh, at the ASCD, you were the most popular person in this entire venue hall. I'm curious, after 10 books, all of the, the fame you've had, why do you still buy, go by the moniker of principal? Why is that title well, so yeah. important to you? Everybody asks that one. I like to think that I was born to leave schools. I like that, you know, I, I, I just believe that. I've had I've turned I've walked away from several superintendent offerings because I've never felt that I was superintendent Kafele. Um, I felt like I was principal Kafele. So when I left my principalship in 2011, I said I'm keeping this title with me. Like if for for for, for, for those listeners who saw the movie, what's love got to do with it? Tina Turner, Ike and Tina Turner. When she divorced Ike Turner, she didn't want anything from him. She didn't want his money. 
she said, I, I just want my name, Tina Turner, because that, you know, that wasn't her name. She said, that's, 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 that's she wasn't born as, as Tina. She was uh, something May. I don't even remember, but she wasn't Tina. And, and, and Annie May, that was her name. And she said, I, I, I just want my name because that's, that's, that's who she, she became the superstar under Tina Turner. So I became, you know, like you, you think about my, my, you know, my years of, of development before I, before I read To Kill a Black Man. I was that guy. As a teacher, although I received accolades, I was teacher of the year for the school, teacher of the year for the district, the county, and finalist for teacher of the year of the state of New Jersey. But it was, but it was my principalship when I really came into my own. You know, that was, um, that was it. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping that title. You know, so I'm principal. You know, people think they treat it as if it's my first name. You know, I, I can't tell you the number of people that just call me principal. Hey, principal. Hey, principal. <laughs> on Facebook, on social media, principal. And 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 I always respond because I, I know they're talking to me. And um, you know, so that's why. So 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 when for for the for the for the fleeting moment when I thought I was going to take a superintendent position, I said somehow these folks are going to have to call me Principal Casale. You know, I didn't know how. But, um, you know, that, that was just my thinking. Wow. I mean, it's 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 such a, a vital part of your identity. And yeah, it, it, it really is. Wow. You know, I, I, call, I don't call, it's very rare that I will call a, a principal colleague by their name. Like, um, it, it, and, and I know that people on social media that see me when I interact with principals, I, I know that a lot of them probably don't understand the language I use. The, the principal on the other end does, but I know that a lot of people watching that probably are like, well, what is he calling that for? Because when I'm talking to a, a, a principal, I call him sister principal or brother principal. That's it. I refer them to them by their name ever. You know, so, so yesterday was my birthday. And, and I, I got, I think over two, over 2,000 people said happy birthday to me. So some of them, most of them I didn't respond because, you know, you can't respond to 2,000 people on Facebook. But some of them that I really knew, I would say to them, thank you, sister principal. Thank you, brother principal. Like that, because that's, that's, you know, that's what I call them. Because I think a lot of them see themselves the way I saw myself in that principal capacity. You know, because I know that it's, it's like a fraternity. And, you know, we, we get it. We know because, because we know what this life is, and it's um, it's not an easy life being a principal, and that's you know, I, I feel for all of them, particularly during a global pandemic. So Shane and I both have our principal certification. Um, what is it about the principalship that you, you almost hold it like a like a band of brothers or like a you know military kind of thing? What what makes that position so? special, I guess. And what would your advice be to our listeners out there who think school leadership might be in their future? Yeah. I, I love the question because, you know, principal leadership, that school, it's that school success is, is, is contingent upon who that principal is. And I don't mean in terms of who you, who you are on your birth certificate, but I mean what you bring. And you you show me a, a you show me a school that is that is performing that, that that came out of something and is now at this high performing school. I promise you that that principle has a lot to do with it. And 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 and, and, and it's, it's so funny for me when I say that when I'm in a room with just principals when I'm doing a training with principals and and and, and you'll have some very humble principal who will say. Principal Kafela, you know I've been with you all day, but I can't, I can't, I can't stay with you on that one. And I know what, I know where they're going with it. I said, I smile. I said, Go ahead, talk to me. And they said, Well, it's not me. They say it's my staff. They say my my, my staff goes above and beyond, and and, and I love it. I'm, I'm sitting there grinning. They said my staff goes above and beyond. They they roll up their sleeves, man. They, the camaraderie. They 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 love working together. And blah 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 blah. And I said, Okay, Principal, you said it all, right? Anything, anything else you want to add? No, it's, it's them. I said, okay, let walk. I said, walk with me on this one. Let's take your staff and let's airlift them out of the building. Right. And let's put your staff in a school with a principal who's the antithesis of you. 
right? Because remember that that staff, they're the way they are because you've allowed them to be that way. Right, you, your leaders, no, forget you, your leadership has allowed them to be that way, where they love being in that space. They love being in that school. They love being around one another. But that's the, but that's, that's your leadership style. So let's put them in that school with that, with that leader, this, this, this un, unapproachable, unaccessible, inaccessible, um, very, very, very mean spirited. Um, and, and it's it, very difficult to be around. So it's just a very toxic environment under that leadership. I said, Hey, principal, let me ask you a question. Do you think that staff of yours is going to be just as energetic in that new space? Same staff. The only thing that changed is the principal. You think they're going to be that energetic? Principal says, I see where you're going, principal Cafele. Yeah, you're right. I got you now. I said, I said, Hey, principal, you know why your school is doing so well? Because you're in the building. Period. I said, go ahead and dispute me. Nah, I got you. <laughs> it's, it's the it's the leadership because see that that staff is fired up and hungry. They they're only going to be fired up and hungry in the right environment. You put them in an oppressive environment. You put them in an environment. Let's say, for example, it's a, it's an environment where students are engaging in, in in undesirable behaviors, and they send them to the principal, and the principal sends them right back to you. No no kind of intervention. No kind of support. They're not going to. They're not going to bring that fire to school every day. They're not going to bring that energy, that excitement, and enthusiasm for the work because they're coming under a different kind of leadership, structure of leadership, a different leadership philosophy and style. So the leadership matters. So, so, it's, so in, in terms of the question, it's it's like you walk into a building. And you know, if particularly someone like myself that understands the, the 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 measure of a principal, I'm saying the success or failure of this school hinges on my leadership. I don't mean my one man show and see. Sometimes, uh, some think I'm, I mean like like I'm Joe Clark running around the building like it's about me. No, if 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 I empower others according to their strengths, that's my leadership. If I trust others, that's my leadership. If I inspire others, if I build others, right, that's my leadership, right? So, so, so how I lead is a reflection of my leadership, not, not me having my feet and my hands in every pot. No, that's, that's, that's insanity because you have, you have people on that staff who have a variety of different strengths. And if we only utilize the folks on staff according to a job description, then then, then we can't we we can't optimize what we can do. But if on the other hand we've identified the strengths of, of the and the weaknesses of various different staff members and use them beyond the the the, the um, job description, man, we can take a school to height that had previously never even been imagined. That's all leadership. And that's why I say to the principal <laughs> Put your, let's put your staff in some 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 horrible environment, and you tell me that staff's gonna come in there fired up every day. They're not. They're gonna be looking for the first the first opening to get out of there, to get a transfer to a better environment to work in. A hundred percent. I think you. I mean, all of that just nailed it on the head from the fact that leadership. I mean, it, it creates the culture. It creates the culture of support, which creates enthusiasm in the staff, which is why they're so successful. And I love That's that right. you said that you empower your staff and you trust your staff. And I think that those two things are just so important for school leaders to be bringing into their buildings to enthuse that staff to be able to want to go the distance. And as you said, use everyone's strengths to the best of your abilities and kind of switch it up on, you know, you don't have to stick within your one job description, especially in times like these where I feel like we're all wearing different hats than we have in the past, but we're taking on new roles and we're doing it because we want the school to be successful and we're doing it because our leaders, like we're there with them. It's not under them. So then can you expand on something that, you know, as a principal, maybe teachers don't know and that we could tell them about, like, what do they not know about the principalship? There's, there's a lot of teachers out here, I think, in the field that don't understand instructional leadership. Um, any given principal can be in a school. If that principal is not operating as an instructional leader, but, but, but thinks 
of him or herself as an instructional leader because they because because those terms were embedded that term was embedded in into him throughout grad school then conceivably and, and, and particularly in a, in a smaller school with where there's no AP or a school where there's just one AP, conceivably those two individuals could be the only ones in the school that know what instructional leadership is, because that person hasn't functioned as an instructional leader. So, I, I very early in my years as a as a principal, I, I felt the need to ensure that not only everyone on staff knew what instructional leadership meant and then they'll see it in practice, but I wanted them to understand why I function the way I do. But I, but I also decided that the student body needs to know what instructional leadership is. They don't need to know the specificity, but I did need them to know why I was in their classrooms, right? Because you can go to any good school and ask the kids, why, why is the principal or why is the assistant, why, why are they in the classroom? They, they don't know. And I, and I wanted them to know I, because I, and the reason was because I didn't want them to see me as just the boss, right? Or, or as an, the authority or as a disciplinarian, I wanted them to see me as an educator. So, so in, in, so in part, because, because one of the other ways that they saw me as an educator saw me teaching because I would go into classrooms and teach um, with, with social studies and history teachers or, or from the stage of when I had the whole school. But as an instructional leader, I wanted them to know not the specificity of my visit, but wanted them to know that my visit was to ensure that their education was world class and second to none. Right. That, that, so, so that changed the whole dynamic of why I was sitting in that classroom, because outside of that, they didn't know. And I wanted them to know. So so when I walk into the classroom, well, OK. There's he, there's another educator, our principal. He's not teaching right now, but he's ensuring that that that, that teaching and learning are are happening at a high level. Yeah, you know, I don't you know nothing nothing punitive or anything of that nature was part of the conversation. Just I'm just watching it, watching education unfold in your classroom. Man, what a cool way to look at that partnership and that yeah. idea of instructional leadership. Uh, I'd never yeah. really thought of it in that way. So. The role of principal has so many different components. There's instructional leadership. There's just managing a building. There's building the schedule. There's discipline. There's parent contact. It really is impossible to do all of those things well. And so if you think of doing each of those roles as like you're juggling, what are the the glass balls that a principal can't let drop and which ones are are rubber balls that that could drop? I guess. Yeah, I had had two non-negotiables. Yeah. the incentive for me writing the book is my school a better school because I lead it were those two non-negotiables. That was me standing in front of my building every day, looking at the building, asking at, at dismissal, asking myself, is this school a better school because I lead it? And many of those days, my answer was an emphatic no, it is not. Uh, somebody else could have come into this school and led it to another level, a level that I did not lead it today. It wasn't a, it wasn't a question of I'm, it, it's not effective. Uh, it's, it's not a better school on a permanent basis. It was a daily, it was a daily question. So, in, in order for me to answer that question in the in the affirmative that it's a better school, my two non-negotiables had to be in place. Non-negotiable no, number one was instructional leadership. Uh, to to what extent was I an instructional leader today? Did my presence matter as related to student achievement? And many of those days, the answer was no. It didn't matter. There, there was nothing about my walk in that school that day that had any um, uh, achievement implication, nothing. But then the second non-negotiable was student um, engagement. And, and, and doing the morning message and the after, the after school message, afternoon message before dismissal did not count because those were both impersonal messages. Those were me speaking to an entire student body where everybody was receiving the same message. But, but in terms of me and, and my, my travels throughout the day between classes and having some kind of engagement with students, some kind of interaction, some kind of reading a quote off the wall, that quote's all over the wall, uh, having students read a quote and, and give me an interpretation of the quote and how it was applicable to their lives, something as simple as that, um, in the hallway, in the stairwell, in the cafeteria, in the gymnasium, wherever. Um, but engaging them in that conversation spoke to student engagement. Did I engage any students today beyond an impersonal, motivational morning message? Right. So if if 
So, so because everything you think about everything that a principal can do, I'm not going to do everything every day. It's impossible. But I said those two things I had to do. And if I didn't do them, then I got to I got to reassess me and come back to school stronger the next day. Well, we just want to say thank you so much. You gave us so many powerful nuggets to think about and and even act on. Um, where can people find you to receive even more amazing nuggets? Yeah, everything is at principalcafele.com, K-A-F-E-L-E, principalcafele.com. And then I also would want to invite anybody listening to um, my Saturday Academy, um, those those in leadership or those who aspire to become leaders or even teachers or leaders. So, so if folks want to come on, nothing to register for, nothing to sign up for, just on my Twitter, my Twitter page at Principal Cafele, one word, or my Facebook page at Principal Cafele. Just follow me because I don't have friends' space. Follow me, and it's at Principal Cafele. Or I have a second page called Virtual Assistant Principal Leadership Academy, which is the same name. They can go there, or they can go to my YouTube channel, School Leadership Thoughts, and it's there live um, every Saturday morning at eleven o'clock Eastern. Well, we will link to all of that and your books on uh, our show notes but again we can't thank you enough all right let's close up shop shane what did you learn oh man there was so much to take away but i think what resonated with me the most was the importance of culture and cultural competency of educators when it comes to meeting the needs of all of our students especially students who are culturally and linguistically diverse Culturally responsive teaching is such an important facet of education, and it's time that we really bring that to the forefront. And if we truly want to teach all students to make sure that we are bringing those culturally responsive teaching practices into the classroom, what are you going to do because of what you learned from Kefele? Yeah, well, I definitely agree with that. He was just a wealth of information in there, and it's a topic we've wanted to have on this show for a long time. So definitely thankful for that. I think one of my big takeaways was I I loved his idea of asking yourself that reflective question, is my school better? Because I was the leader of it. And uh, I've gotten really addicted to this planner. And that makes me sound like, I don't know, a pubescent middle schooler got my first planner, but it's called a Hyatt planner. And it starts every day by setting these three big goals of like, if I don't get these three things done, my day is going to be a failure. And what I want to do is add to the end of that, like, a reflective question like was whatever I did today better because I was involved with it. So I, I like that idea. Shane, this podcast was definitely better because you co-hosted it with me. So I appreciate you riding co-pilot here. Can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more from and with you? You're just too kind, Ben. Um, if you're wanting to connect with me on Instagram, uh, you can find me at fantastically fourth. And I'm also on Twitter at Saeed, S-A-E-E-D underscore Shane. Awesome. Now as a part of the show, you have to tell everyone to have a great generic time of day. Have an amazing generic time of day. Boom. Boom.